Hello and welcome to Servant's Heart Chapel. I am Pastor Daryl, and I hope today's episode is a special blessing to you. So we are back in Romans chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 18. Now originally... Verse 18 through 32 is all about a downward spiral people tend to to make when they move away from God. But there's so much in this that I really don't think I'm going to preach past verse 20. I think I'm only going to preach four verses. There's so many, I have so many notes. You know, I, I have this Bible with wide margins. allows me to put all my notes in the, in, in the Bible. That's why I like to have it. That way if I want to go to preach something again, all my notes are right there. In this case, I could not do that at all. Hardly. I got a little bit. But I got pages and pages of notes here. There's so much in here. So we'll see how we do today. Verse 18 through uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 20 in Romans, is all about God's indictment of the world. We see Paul portraying this. First we'll, we'll see how Paul portrays this depraved Gentile society in its idolatry, immorality, and antisocial behavior. And then he, he, he deals with the, the moralizers, uh, people who profess high ethical standards and apply them to everybody but themselves. And then Paul, later on, Paul will turn to uh, those religious people who are self-confident and they boast their own knowledge of God's law, but they don't obey it. And then finally, he encompasses, Paul encompasses the whole human race and concludes that we are all guilty and without excuse before God. So this this two-part sermons, part one this week, part two next week, is all about that downward spiral. And we're um, we're going to, after that, the coming weeks, we're going to tackle um, a, a... all these people who profess themselves innocent and how they're really guilty. And this is all about coming face to face to the fact that we are guilty. And the reason that's important is because in verse 17, my last sermon, Paul proclaims this wonderful reality that the righteous will live by faith, not by works. We live, we're saved we're rescued by faith in Jesus Christ. Now that is only special and meaningful if we recognize that we have we, there's something we have to be saved from. And so that's why Paul gets into this, and we're going to get more into that later. But And so part one of this downward spiral, this uh, today's sermon I would title, I Once Knew God. 
Those are, I, I, I thought about it, and I believe that I once knew God is the second most tragic statement you can make. The first being, I will never know God, which can only be stated truthfully as someone who's died and already gone to hell. That's the most tragic in existence. The second, I once knew God, someone who knew God before and has, has lost that and no longer knows God. That's horrible. It's heartbreaking. <clears throat> it's an absolute tragedy, and we've seen it so many times over and over again in the lives of many people. And I thought about I, Rosaria Butterfield, her testimony. Rosaria was, I, um, before she knew God, uh, she, she was this uh, very successful college professor, but very deep in sexual sin and, and an atheist and was against Christianity and all against the Bible until a pastor began talking to her and saying things she'd never heard before and began making her think, began making her uh, second guess that she'd got everything figured out. She began to look in the Bible and start trying to answer questions. And she expressed her concerns and her questions with her friends, other friends who were involved in deep sexual sin. And, and many of them just thought that was foolish. And some got mad at her. Why would you even look in that stuff, that garbage? Referring to the Bible. And she had one friend, a man who was, who was very very deep in, in, in sexual sin. Um, he came to her kind of like by night, like Nicodemus came to Jesus. So no one else saw him. He came to her secretly. And he said, here, I want you to have these. And he gave her a few books about God. You see, this man, who was very deep in sin and perversion and corruption, was once a, a pastor. He once knew God. And he himself, for whatever reason, didn't believe he could ever find his way back to God. That was hopeless. But maybe this friend of his, maybe she can find her way to God. And he wanted to encourage that. That's tragic. I once knew God. But that's what we see, we'll see here. And to, uh, today and next Sunday, we're going to see what happened to people who once knew God. So let's begin, shall we? Verse 18, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godliness, godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice the word for there. For indicates a connection, you a cause and effect, and and so so why
why was his wrath being revealed? We're going to talk more about that. But there's a connection between God. Paul decided, I'm going to talk about God's wrath now. I talked about God's grace. You can't talk one about without the other, by the way. God hates sin. For God's wrath. Some people say, well, how can God be angry? We're not talking about God throwing a temper tantrum. Throwing a fit, getting mad and screaming and, 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 and all that. We're not talking about that. That's a human Human anger often involves pride and malice. Often involves revenge, getting even with somebody, making them suffer and, and, and being spiteful, enjoying, enjoying that suffering. No, God's, God's anger is an unchangeable hostility to evil. It's an unchangeable Hostility. God hates evil. There's other... The opposite of wrath is not just love. You have three choices when it comes to sin. You can be angry about it and do something to to, uh, eliminate it. To stop it. To keep people from being involved in it. You can love the sin and encourage people to participate in it. Or you can be neutral and not say anything. I don't like that, but I'm not going to say anything. God surely doesn't love the sin and he's not going to be neutral. God hates the sin. He reacts to it. So his wrath is revealed from that. Notice it says, Against all godlessness and unrighteousness. Now, whatever your translation says, those two words may seem synonymous. Make you wonder, maybe Paul was being redundant, but he wasn't. It's just there's really no good English replacements for those words. The, the first word that I have is godlessness is, is asabiria, which is a, really a sin against God. It, it, both these words, uh, they, they're different in who they're directed to. The first one is a sin against God. The second one, the Greek word uh, adikia, is a sin against men. So Paul covers a full gamut. Sin against God, sin against others. We're talking about all of this offenses. Uh, people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice that God's wrath is revealed. When, when, this tells us when God decides to step in. gives us an exact, when God steps in. When, when God steps in, when we not only willfully sin, but we stifle anyone who tries to discourage our sin. 
or the sin of others. We, we put a stop to it. And we do that in sinful ways. We use sin to stifle any righteous momentum at all. That's what this verse is saying. Now, five, ten years ago, I might have had a little bit, I would have had to really think to give you some examples of that. But reading this verse, the example came immediately to mind. Two words, cancel culture. It's broad right now. It's happening everywhere. Anyone who speaks out publicly about sin, if they're in any position at all, that somebody can affect, they will do it. They'll try to get you fired, try to close down your business. They're trying to cancel entire states now. Big companies say, well, I'm not doing business in this state or that state because they're passing this law as for protecting the unborn or whatever. Cancel culture. This That's a perfect example of exactly the kind of behavior that brings forth God's wrath. Verse 19. <clears throat> Since, hang on, let me, I have so many notes. I feel like I'm missing something. I went over this this morning to make sure I didn't have a hiccup like this right now. So I'm gonna. Uh, there's one note here I want to talk about. I can't find it. I'm probably supposed to mention it later, but we're talking about God's wrath reveals revealed. Um, <clears throat> heaven reveals God's wrath in two ways. First, we have His moral order, and then also His personal intervention. Moral order. Is a sim, uh, similar, to, same as natural order. If 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 I, I drop this this sponge here, it falls to the ground. There's a natural event that's going to happen, right? We expect that to happen. And the same is with moral order. It, you 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 reap what you sow in life, and when you sow sin, you reap uh, death and destruction, pain and suffering. And we've seen that time and again in people's lives. They continue to practice sin and they continue to suffer for it. 
Um, so there's built-in consequences to sin, and thank God for that. Because whatever, whatever consequences we have in this world, it's nothing like the consequence we're going to have in eternity. Um, so any, any negative, any pain and suffering, um, even permanent pain and suffering for the rest of your life because of the sin, um, that is a mercy. That's an attempt to wake you up and get you to see that you need to follow after God. Uh, the second way in which God's wrath is revealed, I mentioned, is personal intervention. Um, and I, I remember a while back, this, this young man who uh, would go out to clubs with his friends a lot, and he would drink and carry on and, and, and do drugs. And over time, he began to gain weight, and he gained so much weight, he couldn't go out with his friends anymore. He was stuck at home. He couldn't go out to clubs and do the things he wanted to do. And, and so he was like that for a while and miserable and unhappy. And then came an opportunity for him to lose weight. And he did that. He went and did the surgery and he lost a bunch of weight. And as soon as he lost enough weight so he could actually move around okay, he was right back in the club with his buddies and, and having a great time, got involved in drugs again. Uh, and and then something happened. A very a rare condition affected him, and suddenly he was paralyzed from the waist down. And as far as I know, he never got it back. But you know, um, a recent picture of him was in his wheelchair, and he was wearing a Jesus T-shirt, and he was smiling from ear to ear, I'd never seen before. And I don't know the details, but I like to think that God saved him by taking away the use of his legs. Saved his life, saved his soul, and now even though he's in a wheelchair, he's going to be happier than he'd ever be, ever be otherwise going back to that old life. God's intervention. We thank God for that mercy too. But remember, sometimes um, God's uh, intervention, God's wrath, the consequences of sin, they're not always immediate. Sometimes they take years. Nothing happens. The person's like, oh, I'm, you know, God doesn't know or he doesn't care or God doesn't exist. I'm just going to do what I want to do. But there will always be a reckoning for those who rebel against God. And it's almost never immediate. That's, that's also a mercy. You see, the Canaanites, the people that, that lived in the land of Canaan, um, Israel came up and... and, and Eventually, Israel would would God would give all that land to Israel, um, and all these different people groups in, in Canaan, uh, and and God waited, didn't let Israel just immediately go into Canaan and start ransacking the place and taking over, because God was giving them time to repent. 
In fact, he even said, my, my cup of wrath is not yet full. God gives uh, people time to either repent or continue in their sin till one day God's cup of wrath is full and a day of reckoning has come. That's what happened in Nineveh. Nineveh, God's cup of wrath was getting full and he gave them one more warning and they repented and, and God turned away his wrath from them and didn't destroy Nineveh. Verse uh, 19, see what I mean? 20 minutes and we've only got one verse. Uh, Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. What can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. You see, the cosmos itself is a witness to God. In Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, David testified the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands day by day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge about God this place is is, is too amazing the world is too amazing the universe is too amazing for there not to be a God there was an article I came across titled some men say there is no God All the wonders around you are accidental. No almighty hand has made a thousand billion stars. They they made themselves. The surface of our land just happens to have topsoil without which we would have no vegetables to eat and no grass for the animals whose meat is our food. The inexhaustible envelope of air only 50 miles deep and of exactly the right density to support human life is just another law of physics. We have day and night because the earth spins at a given speed without slowing down. Who made this arrangement? Who tilts it so we get seasons? The sun's fire does not generate too much heat so that we fry, but just enough so that we do not freeze. Who keeps the fire constant? The human heart will be for 70 or 80 years without faltering. How does it get sufficient rest between beats? Who gave the human tongue flexibility to form words? Who made a brain to understand them? Is it all accidental? There is no God? That's what some people say. And speaking of uh, the human body, Here's some interesting facts about our own bodies. They proclaim, our bodies proclaim, the more we learn about the world around us, the more it proclaims that God is real. He cares. He, he, he's, he's, he's here and He created all things. There's no way it can happen by act. The average human heart pumps over 1,000 gallons a day, over 55 million gallons in a lifetime. That's enough to... Fill 13 super tankers. It never sleeps. Beating 2.5 billion times in a lifetime. The lungs contain 1,000 miles of capillaries. 1,000 miles. The process of exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide is so complicated 
that Dr. John Medina, a genetic engineer, said it is more difficult to exchange O2 for CO2 than for a man shot out of a cannon to carve the Lord's Prayer on the head of a pen as he passes by. DNA contains about 2,000 genes per chromosome. 1.8 meters of DNA are folded into each cell nucleus. A nucleus is 6 microns long. You know how long that is? Well, there are 1,000 microns to 1 millimeter and 10 millimeters to 1 centimeter. My pinky is just a little bit bigger than 1 centimeter. That's pretty small. It's like putting 30 miles of fishing line into a cherry pit. And it isn't, isn't simply stuffed in either. It's folded in. If folded in one way, the cell becomes a skin cell. If another way, a liver cell, and so forth. To write out the information in one cell would take 300 volumes, each volume 500 pages thick. That's about 450 megabytes worth of information in each and every one of our cells. The human body contains enough DNA that if it were stretched out, it would circle the sun, the sun, 260 times. There is no God. The body uses energy very efficiently. If an average adult rides a bike for one hour at 10 miles an hour, it uses the amount of energy contained in three ounces of carbohydrate. I remember a while back, there was a, a new car company that was coming out that was uh, advertising they were going to build a car that got 84 miles per gallon. I was excited about it. A lot of people were. It didn't happen. The company's out there, but just barely surviving. Never did build one car. It's very hard to start a new car company. But 84 miles per gallon, that was a, a, a really surprising thing. If, a, if, a, if we could get a car as efficient as the human body is, that car would get 900 miles to the gallon. Tony Evans once said that every day that you wake up, nature is preaching a sermon. Amen. Verse 19, back again. What is known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Verse 24, his individual attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. His, his invisible attributes. First off, what attributes is Paul talking about? Well, he said his eternal power and divine nature. At the very least, everybody in the world is able to understand God's eternal power and divine nature in nature, in seeing creation. But the Bible talks about a number of other of God's attributes, and I just kind of wanted to go over them real quick. 
not spend a lot of time on them, but I want you to either remember, or maybe this is the first time you've heard about these different attributes. So let's quickly go through them. First off, God is eternal. God always existed. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an ending. God is also faithful. You can always rely on him. Not like a human who may lie sometimes or make a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. He's always trustworthy. God foreknows. He knows what's going to happen. He knows a day uh, is, 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 is like a thousand years to him or a thousand years to a day. He knows what's going to happen at the end of time. He knows what choices we're going to make. Doesn't mean he determined that. Just means he knows it ahead of time. So people think that, well, if God knows what I'm going to do, then I don't have any free choice. No. God is good. And I'm glad he is. So many other religions have gods that are, are evil, who are um, spiteful and bitter and vengeful and hard to please. God is not that way. He's good. He is also holy. He is pure. God is immutable. You know what immutable means? It means he's unchanging. That's a nice thing. That's, that's important. That allows us to look in the Bible and see how God deals with people from thousands of years ago, and we know God hasn't changed. <clears throat> so he's the same. So we can learn about God. We don't have to constantly update our Bible. That would be a pain. God is impartial. He's not a respecter of persons, doesn't treat some better than others. God is incomprehensible. We are not going to be able to comprehend him, fully understand him. An ant would have a better or have an easier time comprehending us than us comprehending God. God is infinite. Everything about him is infinite. His power is infinite. His knowledge is infinite. God is also jealous and not evil jealousy. God wants to be treated as he should be treated, respected as he should be respected, obeyed as he should be obeyed, and, and doesn't like people taking his creation and making it their God. God is just. He's perfectly just. He will not abide by evil. But God is long-suffering. He gives you plenty of time to make a correction, to make things right. God is also love. Some people make love God. There's a difference. God is love. Love is not God. We don't worship love. God is merciful. I'm grateful for that. I need it every day. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's he he ever. You can't hide from him. There's nowhere on earth in this world, above in the sky, even in space, go for light years away. God will still be nearby. God is omniscient. He knows everything. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. There's nothing he has to learn. 
God is uh, is provident. God has uh, is involved in what we call providence. God is involved in our lives. There are people who believe, oh, God is out there, but He's not involved in our lives at all. That is absolutely not true. God is righteous. He does what is right. He's self-existent. He doesn't. He, he didn't need anybody to to create him. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody to sustain him. He's sovereign. In charge of everything. Nothing happens without his okay. He's transcendent. That means he's he's independent of time and space. He's not subject to natural laws. God is truthful. Never lies. God is wise. He always has, he not only knows everything, he knows the best way to apply that knowledge. And God, the other attribute of God is his wrath. The final attribute of God is his wrath. And as we already described, it's un- his unchangeable hostility toward evil. So those is in, those are some of his attributes, and, and we see in, in verse twenty, you know, talk about his eternal power and divine nature. Those two attributes of his are clearly seen. Isn't that interesting? Uh, uh, Paul says, "Invisible, they're invisible, but they're clearly seen." How in the world can the invisible be clearly seen? Well, Jesus explained that when he talked to Nicodemus. He talked about the wind is blowing out right now. You can see it. You can't see the wind at all. But if I I can see it moving the trees, I can see it affecting the world around us. And if I go out there, I'll be able to feel the wind on me, pushing against me. And these attributes of God, they affect our world, they affect our hearts, they affect us. They, and we feel them and know them and we're motivated, discouraged or encouraged by them. That is how they're clearly seen. Since the creation of the world, it said, being understood through what he has made. God is understood through what he has made. When I was in high school, I read the book uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and it brought me closer to God. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, a book, some, some Zen Buddhist guy. And the reason is, the author, he took some motorcycle trip with his son, and, and the author talked about the motorcycle itself and the design of it, and, and, and talked about how all those parts and the shape and the function that was in somebody's brain at one time. They, they thought of it. So to look at a motorcycle, you're kind of looking inside the mind of the designer. And I thought, wow, to look at nature, you're looking inside the mind of the designer. What can we tell? God loves life. There's so much life in this world. God loves color. Everything's bright, you know, flowers springtime. God loves music. Outside our house, the birds sing. I 
We can learn so much about God just by looking at nature. As a result, it says, the last clause in verse 20, people are without excuse. Now, what's interesting about that is without excuse is a legal term. It's a legal term. They're without a defense. So nobody in this world can plead innocence because nobody can plead ignorance. <clears throat> you see, throughout history, God has worked to prepare the hearts of various peoples for receiving the gospel. Did you know that? We have so much evidence, so much history of God reaching out to people to prepare their hearts for receiving the gospel. I've started reading a book called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. I'm going to get a physical copy for the church library. I think you all should read it. It's a wonderful book. I was reading out loud to Missy today. It's so inspiring, and I want to share with you a few of those stories. The first one, we get some reference actually from the Bible, from Acts chapter 17, verse 23. Now, let me set, let me set the scene here. Paul is in Athens, and he's getting ready to preach to these pagans. That Athens had hundreds of gods, and he's getting ready to introduce the gospel to them. So here's what he does. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim... I'm oh, sorry, let me back up here. Verse 23. For as I was passing through... And observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. And he begins to introduce this unknown God to the people of Athens. Now, up until recently, I'd always thought that the Athenians created an altar just to cover their bases. You know, they had hundreds of gods. Well, we might have missed somebody. So let's create an altar to the unknown God. That way he or she is happy with that. I was wrong. We actually have a history of how that altar came to be through ancient Greek historians. 500 years before Christ... In Athens, there was a vast plague that swept the area. Many people were dying, and, and they were beside themselves. They figured that some god was unhappy with them, and that they were being cursed. And so they went to an oracle to get information on the situation from the oracle. 
And the oracle told them that it was, in fact, they, they were, it was a, a wrathful God, but it was, it was no God they've been worshiping. It was another God. And this oracle told them to go get a man in another place uh, called Epimedes. And go get him and uh, bring him back and he'll tell you what to do. So they went and got him kind of begrudgingly because they thought, is there no one wise enough in Athens? We have to go get a foreigner. But they did. They got him and he went to Mars Hill. And you can still go to Mars Hill. They still know where it is. And you can go to the amphitheater that Paul preached, which would this event would have happened. Because the base of Mars Hill, here's what he did. They went to the base of Mars Hill and he said, okay, go get a bunch of hungry sheep who haven't eaten yet. Get different colors. All of them, you know, unblemished. None of them lame. Bring them, and then and then we're going to release them into this pasture area at at the base of Mars Hill, and and I want a one man watching each and every sheep, and see what they do. Because here's what we're going to do: whatever sheep doesn't immediately start eating and just lays down, we're going to know that that's a sheep that this God. Who's mad at us? And by the way, the oracle told them that they were mad at him because uh, one of their generals had uh, murdered a bunch of people, and uh, and and that's God's wrath was upon Athens for that. Um, and so um, this God, whatever sheep he wants, you know, going to cause him to, that sheep to lay down instead of eating. Now, the sheep hadn't eaten for a while; they're all really hungry. And so the Athenians were a little uncertain about that. Like, that's not going to happen. They're always going to start eating. And so they, they sent him out, and sure enough, one white sheep just lays down, doesn't eat. And, and that might be a fluke, right? Maybe he's sick. Well, another white sheep over here just lays down, doesn't eat. I'm like, okay, where those sheep are at, build altars right now, and let's sacrifice those sheep to this God. In, in repentance for this sin that's been committed. And they did that. This is 500 years before Christ. They didn't know what the Hebrew God. And uh, uh, they did that. And they're like, oh, and, 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 and the plague was lifted and they were excited and they wanted to put placards on, on, on these altars. And uh, they weren't sure what to put. And well, we can't just guess a name because then the God might get offended. So someone suggested to the unknown God. And I thought that was a great idea. And so they did that. So when Paul came up, it says he went to, to, to refer to one altar. I don't know if he didn't see the other altar or maybe the other altar over time, the 500 years, was gone. But I can imagine the one altar was kind of broke down a little bit, worn wasn't taken care of. No one really paid much attention to it. So that's what happened. The Athenians, after, after God answered their prayer, 
they kind of went back to their old gods again. <clears throat> but but then Paul sent God, uh, God sent Paul to go preach on the, this unknown God. This very God that answered their prayer 500 years ago. This is the one and true God. And he sent his son to die for us. And, for, and many were saved. Because God had prepared their hearts. And there's so many more. It's not just the Bible, uh, Bible story here. That they were saved. <clears throat> Let's look at um, South America. The Incan Empire. From the 1200s to 1572, they're a very powerful nation. Almost a million square miles they controlled. They're very pagan and evil. They, they participated in human sacrifice, both adults and children. They had many gods, mainly worshipped the sun god. Well, one, one Incan king... Pachacuti, for, who ruled from 1438 to 1471, began to question sun worship. And the reason he did, he, he had written about it. He wrote why. That it, it never does anything original. It just goes up and goes down. And surely a real God would do something original. And, and also... A small cloud can dim the sun's light. And he didn't think a real God could be so easily dimmed like that. So then he considered another one of their gods called Viracocha. Viracocha was known as the Lord, the omnipotent creator of all things. Does that sound familiar? He remembered that Viracocha had showed up in, in, in his father's dream one night and, and reminding his father that he is the creator of all things. And so uh, uh, Pachacuti uh, encouraged the upper class to worship Viracocha and, and they built him a temple and Here's how uh, he, he was, uh, Viracocha was described. Ancient, remote, supreme, uncreated, doesn't need a wife, manifests himself as a trinity. That was interesting. And created all peoples by his word. So, began to worship uh, the, the one true God. But for whatever reason, uh, Pachacuti uh, only had the upper class worshiping the one true God. The rest, the common man in the Incan Empire continued to worship the sun. And so when the conquistadors came through and killed the upper class, and then later the missionaries came. There was no one to make that connection. The, to realize that the missionaries were talking about the one true God. 
So that was a sad story. A better story is a Santal in India. And this is my last story for today. In 1867, a missionary by the name of Lars, you know what, let's call him Lars. He was Norwegian, and the last name is rather difficult for my American mouth. Lars went to uh, the Santal in India, I think near Calcutta, about two million, two and a half million people. And he is 1867. He expected years before he saw one conversion. They were very deep in sorcery, demon worship, and nature worship. But when he he, he learned their language rather quickly, by the way, which I believe is, is a gift of, of t- the true gift of tongues. He very easily picked up their language, this very strange language. He was able to speak in it, and people would come from miles around just to see this white guy speak their language so well. And so after he had mastered their language, he, he began to preach the gospel. And to his shock and amazement, he got an immediate response. People were saying things like, the Kurjiu has not forgotten us. The Kurjiu has not forgotten us. Now this surprised Lars because he knew that the Kurjiu literally means genuine God. And so he was like, how do you know about the genuine God? And they said, our fathers, our forefathers worshipped him. And he asked them, why don't you worship him? And they gave him, they told him a tragedy. Why they ended up where they were. Long, long time ago, they were traveling from one place to where they are now. And they were going through a mountainous region. And they got kind of, in a valley, and and they were having trouble finding their way. They got kind of stuck. And and the men could could climb over certain things, but the women and children were couldn't make it. And they were getting nervous, and they were getting scared. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't find their way out of that valley safely. And, and, and in their fright during this crisis, they lost their faith, and it occurred to you. And they instead prayed to the the gods of the mountains. And in their prayer, they promised allegiance to the gods of the mountains if they, they, they rescue them. And the next morning, the sun rose. And as the sun rose, they could see this clear pass out of the mountains. And so, bound by their word, not any love for these evil spirits, they began to worship these spirits and 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 worship of Thakurjiu went it was less and less and less until they just had the stories and they just had his name. But when Lars came, and share with them the gospel. Joy, they said, the Kurjiu has not forgotten us. The genuine God has not forgotten us. 
thousands were saved. Tens of thousands were saved. For a long time, they had 80 baptisms a day. I'm sure Lars' hands were wrinkled every single day. He might have had some, some skin issues. 80 baptisms a day. And back home, the missionary society was concerned. They'd never seen anything like that. It was growing 500 times as fast as the church in England. And they thought, surely, they just don't understand what they're doing. Oh, but no, they did. Because they had once known the genuine God had prepared their hearts for reception of the gospel. Then here's a wonderful truth. God wants us to know him. Do you know God? Do you have, uh, do you, uh, do you have that, that tragic phrase on your lips that I once knew God? But I no longer do. You can know God. There's nothing stopping you. Don't let the devil tell you. The devil will tell you, no, you've gone too far. You've done too much. There's no hope for you. But as long as there's breath in your lungs, there is hope. You care at all about your soul and a relationship with God. If you're thinking right now, I would love to have a relationship with God. I would love to know him. I would love to sense his presence. I would love to spend my mornings with him and my day with him. You, there is hope. You're not hopeless. Know him. Praise God for that. And that'll end today's sermon. Four verses. Look at that. 53 minutes. Wow. Praise the Lord. Let us stand. Well, that's all for today. We certainly hope it was a blessing to you. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at servantsheartchapel at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can go to servantsheartchapel.org. Have a wonderful day.